I remember when my firstborn was born. And what I remember most about that was how proud I was that my son had entered the world and I wanted to share that news with everybody, right? Facebook, emailing, parents, grandparents, friends, got them on my phone, ready to show them off whenever. Has there ever been a time in your life where there's just been some great news that happened to you that you just wanted to share with other folks? Something that was like super exciting, could have been the birth of a child, could have been like graduating from high school or college or maybe a new job or whatever. What was one piece of information that was so important to you that you just needed to share it with other people? Go ahead and turn to the person next to you. Tell them one time when that was true of you, one important thing you shared with the world. Whenever there is great news, you want to share it with the world, just like these individuals did this past fall, people in the streets proclaiming that finally the evil tyrant has been defeated, the reign of terror is over, there is a new king on the throne, it is a gospel of good news, and I have to get everything I can out of this year because it might be another decade before I get to talk about it again, but that's exactly what gospel means. Gospel is a proclamation of good news that a new era has begun. A new king is on the throne. Welcome to our new series, The Gospel. Now, I'd like to start this morning with uh, a little bit of a history lesson, if you'll indulge me. Uh, I'm going to read to you an inscription that was found in a town called Priene in the ancient uh, Near East in the Roman Empire. It's now what we would call modern-day Turkey. Uh, this inscription was written in 9 B.C., Speaking of Caesar Augustus, read what it says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she, that is providence, filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants, to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. And since Caesar, by his appearance, excelled by even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world, 
that came by him, this inscription intended to restart the human calendar by having year one be the year of Caesar Augustus's birth. That's what this entire inscription was intended to do. It's called the Priene Calendar Inscription. You can actually go and see it at the museum in Berlin, Germany. This is what was said of Caesar Augustus about four or five years before Jesus was even born. Uh, this kind of language is actually all over the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire uh, was vast was spreading all throughout the region, and it was heralded as a, as a time of peace for the world that was brought through the Son of God, Caesar Augustus. Did you know that uh, poets and Roman historians said this about Caesar Augustus? I want to show you some of the titles that they had given him, what they said. He was called the divine Son of God, who had a gospel, that is good news, of peace, the Pax Romana, many of you probably studied that in high school, that offered forgiveness of sins and was salvation for humanity. Um, and all of that was said of Caesar Augustus before Jesus was born. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I remember the first time that I heard all of those titles and was told that those were said of Caesar Augustus before they were said of Jesus. I was honestly, I was a little shaken, a little rattled by that. Because if you, like me, grew up in the church, you know that all of those titles are spoken of in the New Testament as being about Jesus, not about Caesar Augustus. Now, those are sacred titles to me. Those, those are holy words. They have power and, 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 and meaning. So how can they be connected to Jesus and yet also said of Augustus a few years before Jesus was even born? Uh, you see, you and I, we live with a completely different lens now 2,000 years after the life of Jesus, than did the people that the New Testament writers were writing to. You see, when we hear those words, divine son of God, right, has a gospel of peace that offers forgiveness of sins, salvation for humanity, we only know that within context of Jesus. But 2,000 years ago, in Rome, those words were not connected to Jesus. They were connected to Caesar. Uh, Caesar was the one who was worshipped. It was his words that were obeyed. His ways were revered. And when we understand that context, it begins to help us understand what the writers of the New Testament were doing and how they were describing Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Mark actually opens up his gospel. Remember the word gospel just means good news. He opens up his gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. Listen to them, 
with Roman ears. Roman ears where Caesar is called the divine son of God, savior of the world, forgiver of sins, Lord. Listen to what Mark says. The beginning of the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark says, there is a new beginning, and it is good news, but not about Caesar Augustus, rather about Jesus. He is the Messiah, because the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, but he is also Son of God a title that had been used of Caesar. Do you see how explosive those words are when you read them with Roman ears? Uh, What Mark does with one small little verse, actually one half of a sentence, is he sets us up to understand that everything that's going to follow from then on is tension between... Caesar and Jesus. Between the Roman Empire and the kingdom of God. It's not an accident that we're in a new series on the gospel right after we come out of our study of the book of Joshua. At the end of Joshua, he actually asks a similar question that Mark is asking when he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house... We will serve Yahweh. We will serve the Lord. Mark is basically doing the very same thing. We miss it because we don't listen with Roman ears, right? None of us grew up 2,000 years ago in the middle of the Roman Empire where there was inscriptions like the pre-NA calendar inscription all over the place. But when we step back and understand what was taking place in the context, all of a sudden these words that Mark leaves for us at the very beginning become explosive. Which kingdom... Are you going to be a part of? Who do you think is actually bringing good news? Who's actually the Son of God? And it wasn't just Mark who did this. Flip over to Luke chapter 2, one of the other gospel writers. Luke chapter 2. It's the very next gospel. Get to Luke chapter 2, and Luke does something at the beginning of his gospel as well in verse 1. He says, in those days, who? Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. By simply dropping his name in the beginning of this gospel, he's instantly alerting all of his hearers to what's to follow. You see, everybody at that time knew who Caesar Augustus was. They knew what Caesar Augustus had done. They knew how he rose to power, that he was adopted by his great uncle on his mother's side, who was Julius Caesar. And so all of Julius Caesar's legions and armies became loyal to him. And how after the kingdom kind of got divided into three at Julius Caesar's death, how it was actually Caesar Augustus who brought the Roman Empire back together, unifying the entire empire. And how it brought in a time of peace, at least in Rome. There was a whole lot of war happening at the edges 
where he was defeating and taking over Egypt and Hispania, which would be modern-day Spain and France and Dalmatia and other spots as well. He was developing uh, a governmental system where there was some engagement with the peoples themselves and building roads that were going throughout the Roman Empire. They understood all of that when Luke simply drops his name into the text. Now, drop down just a little bit later. This is actually the birth of Jesus being foretold here in Luke chapter 2. And it's a group of angels that have been sent by God in heaven to speak to some shepherds at a countryside on the night of Jesus' birth. Verse 10, it says, But the angel said to these shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you what? Good news. Gospel. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for who? All the people. All the people. That will cause great joy for all the uh, people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Curios. All things that had been spoken of Caesar Augustus. And then if you actually drop down to verse 14, we see these angels say, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. Do you see the setup that's taking place here? Do you see what the gospel writers are doing? They're saying, look, there's two kingdoms. There is a kingdom that seems to be the largest, strongest, most powerful thing and a way to interact in that kingdom. And the gospel writers are saying, but there is another kingdom of which Jesus is the king. He is the Son of God. Uh, now, most of the New Testament is actually filled with letters um, that were written by a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul was a latecomer to Christianity. He actually uh, hated Christianity the first 30-some years of his life, was very interested in trying to stamp out Christianity all around Jerusalem, Israel, and Jesus meets Paul while he's on the road to Damascus, and it absolutely transforms his life. Paul goes from being a hater of Christians to one of the most outspoken Christians in the history of the world. And Paul senses a calling from God to bring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire. And so Paul winds up traveling all throughout the Roman Empire to some of the biggest cities. In fact, he even eventually winds up in Rome so that he can share this good news. He wrote a letter to a church that he had helped plant in Colossae called Colossians. So he writes to these Colossian believers that are living there. And I want to read what he says to bring this point home to a conclusion. But before I do that, let me share with you some of the titles and descriptors that were given, not just to Caesar Augustus, but to all of the Caesars that followed behind him. You continue to read, you see that the Caesars continue to be talked about in the same way that initially they started talking about Caesar Augustus. These are pretty uh, heavy titles, descriptions. He's called Savior of the World, Son of God, Image of the Gods, the Firstborn, Lord, the Beginning of All Things, 
head of the body of the world, supreme one, bringer of peace. They even say that salvation comes through Caesar alone. Now, I'm going to leave that picture up while I read to you from Colossians chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. In fact, I want you to pay attention to what Paul is doing when he writes to explain to the Colossians who Jesus is. I want you to pay attention to some of the things that the Caesars were called. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul says, The Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You feel the tension so far? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Do you see all the illusions that Paul is making? Paul saying, look, the Caesars are said to be this, but I'm telling you, this is what Jesus is like. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And he finishes it in a very interesting way. Pretty shocking, to be honest. He says that Jesus brings peace, how? Through his blood shed on a cross. You want to know what the number one symbol of Rome was? Their might, their fear, how they humiliated their enemies? They were hung on a cross. You talk about the cross, everybody knew what that meant. Everybody understood, now that's Rome's power, bro. That's how Rome shows off. That's how Rome humiliates its enemies. It's the symbol of who they are, the kingdom that they're building. And so Paul riffs off of that last piece just a few verses later in chapter 2. Look at what he says, I'm going to have it up on the screen because I'm going to read it to you from the message version. I think that it flows a little bit easier to understand. And I also made some tweaks in there so that you really understand what's happening in the original language. Listen to this. Paul says to the Colossians, look, entering into this relationship with Jesus is not something that you figure out. It's not something that you achieve. It's not a matter of religious rights or keeping a long list of laws. No. You're already in, insiders, not through some secretive initiation, right, but rather through faith in what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. If it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it when you were baptized. Going under the water showed the burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. 
all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross. That is not a veiled reference. That is a very blatant reference to Caesar. That same cross meant to showcase their strength, humiliate and defeat Jesus, he used instead to flip the script, showcasing his strength, leaving them humiliated and defeated. The New Testament is clear. There are two kingdoms at play. One is led by the Caesars. One is led by Jesus. Uh, we started this sermon by reading the Priene calendar inscription, which was really a declaration to say, like, Caesar's the greatest, he's awesome, he's like a son of the gods, and he's brought peace, and so therefore, uh, we're going to start the calendar over. We're going to start counting from his birth, which was B.C. 69. Do you know what I just said? I said B.C. 69, I did not say Caesar Augustus year one. Why is that? Because Caesar Augustus went away and Jesus showed who was actually the one in control. But that's still a choice that you and I have to make today. Uh, you see, A.D. literally means Anno Domini. I always thought of it after death. Like B.C. stands for before Christ. And then I was like, A.D., that's after death, right? Because they, they were speaking English back then. No, actually, that's not it. Uh, it's actually Latin Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. That's why we're in 2022 A.D., 2022, the year of our Lord. You see, human history changed. Now, sadly, we miscalculated by about four years. Jesus was probably born 4 B.C., 5 B.C., not at year one. But that is how the calendar that we still use today in the West is connected not to Caesar Augustus, but to Jesus the Christ. The gospel, friends, is a story. It's a story about God. From start to finish, it's not simply just a prayer that we pray. Way too often we talk about the gospel and we have in our minds, oh, that's that thing that I'm supposed to pray to, to like become a Christian. The gospel is an announcement that Jesus is the king and that his kingdom has begun that we are in an entirely new era. That's what gospel is. It's an announcement, an announcement of good news, that there is a king on the throne, and his kingdom works a certain way. Uh, you want to know why I wanted to do this series? Um, it's because of uh, people like K and C and Z and N and A and L. All people that in the last few years, uh, I've had the privilege of talking to them about their faith journey and asking them about their story. And every single one of those folks that I just mentioned would have told you that they were a Christian. When we started that conversation, they would have said they were a Christian. And what they meant by that is, well, I'm not atheist and I'm not Buddhist, and I grew up in America, so therefore I must be Christian. In fact, many of them had actually 
grown up going to church. A couple of them had even grown up going to Christian schools. And yet when I asked them about their relationship with Jesus, they genuinely had no way to explain what that meant to them. The reason I wanted to do this series is because I honestly believe that the only thing scarier than standing before God knowing that you're not a Christian is standing before God thinking you are when you're not. That can happen very easily in West Michigan. Can we just be honest about that? There's a whole host of folks. They know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Does that make sense? And I'm not naive enough to think that everybody in this room knows Jesus in that way. The reason I wanted to do this series is because I want us to take a really good hard look at which kingdom we're actually a part of. If we truly know what it means to give our lives to Jesus, to say yes to him, to enter into his family, to understand what his death and resurrection actually meant, it wasn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It was a whole new way of doing life, of understanding how we're supposed to live and act, of recognizing that there are still two kingdoms alive today. And Jesus' kingdom, friends, it's so different than the kingdom of this world. Can I just go off a little bit about the difference Jesus is a different kind of king. He brings peace, not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. He offers salvation not through works, but by faith. He brings power not through might, but by humility. He makes the least the greatest, the weak the strongest. When the world says you need to get yours, Jesus says it's better to give yours. When the world says climb high, Jesus says Stoop low. When the world says strive, Jesus says rest. When the world says save your life, Jesus says give your life. He's a different kind of king, presenting a different kind of kingdom. There's still two kingdoms that are declaring good news. Caesar Augustus may be dead, but Caesar Americus is still alive and kicking, friends. And it's shouting its gospel to us all the time. It's constantly telling you where you're going to find purpose and fulfillment. It's always trying to tell you how you can be happy. It's trying to tell you that power is what you should go after. And that kingdom, continuously with its false God's leaves us empty and hollow. Man, you talk to anybody that's gotten to the top of the game in whatever it is that they're a part of, and every single one of them will say, I got there, I finally achieved what I wanted, and I wasn't fulfilled. That's because the Roman Empire never could do that, nor can the American dream. Only Jesus can fulfill that which is inside your heart, that which your soul longs for. As C.S. Lewis said, we were all born with a God 
shaped hole in our heart. And it doesn't matter what you try to stuff in there, whether it's riches or fame or notoriety or great grades or an awesome job or a cute husband or a hot wife or fill in the blank of anything that you want to, it won't fill that hole. Only Jesus can do that. And so both of those kingdoms are simply asking you, which story are you going to believe? Which story are you going to believe? So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to ask some questions. We're going to talk through the story of the gospel of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we're all left with those three questions that you see up on the screen. What gospel do you believe? Which one have you aligned your life with? Which king will you give your allegiance to? Father God, we, we know how powerful the kingdom of this world is, how loud it yells at us, speaks to us, sings to us. Jesus, how often my own heart is captured by that. And Jesus, I find myself running to those empty wells, thinking that they're going to somehow satisfy my thirst. God, only, only will I be satisfied in you, Jesus. And so, Father, uh, God, right now, I just want to pray for some folks. If you guys have all your eyes bowed and your heads closed, uh, I think that there's probably some folks in this room right now, just like there were in the first service, now, God's saying something to you, and you just need to be prayed for. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just simply going to ask you to look up at me, make eye contact, because I want to pray specifically for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Father God, you, you saw those eyes. God, more than those eyes, you saw those hearts. Jesus, way too often we, we find ourselves chasing after things that can't fulfill us. God, there's some folks here this morning that want to make a commitment to you, to saying yes to you. They believe Jesus. They want to step into your kingdom, submit themselves to you as their king, their Lord. So, Father, I pray for those folks this morning. Holy Spirit, meet with them right now in that space. The decision that they're making to say yes to you and no to the kingdom of this world. Father, let us all echo that same prayer. Jesus, I want to say yes to you and your kingdom and no to this world's kingdom. I want to find myself in you. God, we pray that for each and every one of us. Keep moving, Holy Spirit. Keep moving in this time as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.